We're in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be in this book for a little while, but we are in chapter 4 this morning. Now I'm going to introduce our text, which is chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, by telling you a story. It's a parable that Jesus told that you know very, very well. You'll remember that the prodigal son, this younger son, came to his father and insisted that he give his inheritance, which his father, father, I'm sure, sadly and reluctantly did. Once this younger son had his inheritance, he couldn't get away from father and home soon enough. He wanted to taste the good life that people long for and search for. Jesus described that life as this son squandering his estate with loose living. That's how he described it. But when you forsake the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and drink the world's broken cistern, your famine soon comes. Many of us know that. The famine soon comes. Finding himself utterly destitute and forsaken by all his so-called friends, he was driven to survive in any way he could possibly He ended up finding the only job Jesus said was offered to him, and that was feeding pigs. A Jew feeding pigs. He was so famished, so hungry, that out of desperation he even ate the husks that the pigs were eating, Jesus says. Then Jesus adds these wonderful words. When he came to his senses... Isn't that good? Would that many, many would come to their senses. Having hit the bottom and being in great despair and depression, he finally comes to his senses. And he said to himself, My father's many hired men have more than enough to eat, but I am out here dying from hunger. I will get up. And go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants or men. And so, as you know the story in great humility, clothed in his rags, filthy and smelling like the pigs, he made that long trip back home to his father. And what did his father do when he saw him coming in the distance? You know that with a broken heart, he had been longing for his son to return. Every day he would look out over the horizon, studying that long pathway that led from his home, just hoping to get a glimpse of his son returning. And then... And then, one day, his father's heart leaped for joy as he saw this lonely figure making its way up that path. And as that figure got closer, the father recognized it was his long-lost son. Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before his son could get those other words that he intended to say out, make me as one of your hired servants, his father said to his slaves, quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, the son of mine, was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. If you are genuinely saved this morning, you can identify with that son, can't you? Out there, drinking from the world's cistern, finding yourself empty and searching and wondering what life is all about. However, however, for many a son or daughter who has come to their senses and returned to the father, and the father has embraced that son, that daughter, he's clothed them with a robe and had the father's ring placed upon their finger, and he has welcomed them home as his precious son, his precious daughter, they go on viewing themselves and living as one of the father's hired servants. Interesting. And they live out their Christian lives not as a son or a daughter, not as an heir, but as a slave. This introduction explains why this morning's message is entitled, You're no slave. You're God's son. You're no slave. If you've made that journey back home to the Father, you're no slave. You're God's son. And that brings us to the first major point in this morning's outline. And if you have a bulletin, you have an outline, I encourage you to use that. It looks something like this, not filled in, so you'll stay awake. And I begin with a question. I begin with a question. Are you a foolish Galatian? Are you a foolish Galatian? Are you mixing law and grace? First point there. Are you mixing law and grace? This letter of Galatians was the first of 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that became scripture that God preserved for you and me today. You remember he and his missionary team, they had gone up into the Galatian region and they preached the gospel and a great many of the Gentiles received that gospel and they had come to saving faith. They rejoiced to know and belong to the one true God. They rejoiced to have all of their sins forgiven forever. And they had the assurance of knowing that they possessed eternal life, not when they get to heaven, but already, and they're going to go to heaven. They rejoiced in all of that as they received this gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them. But after Paul and his team left the Galatian region, some so-called Christians, who were Jews who had come out of the mother church evidently in Jerusalem, maybe even saying that James, a half-brother of Jesus, sent them, came along and tried to convince these Galatian Christians that they weren't actually, really, truly saved. They could not be until they had adhered to certain mosaic requirements, such as being circumcised and keeping certain Jewish customs and feasts. 
I mean, it was fine and good that they believed that Jesus was their Messiah, that he came and went to the cross and was raised up on the third day. But, but that was not enough to save them. In other words, they were requiring them to mix law and grace for salvation to really take place in their lives. And by the way, a lot of Christians live right there, being foolish Galatians. Look what Paul writes to these Gentile believers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Going a little bit backward. Chapter 3, 1 through 3. <laughs> Look what he says. I wonder what Paul would say in many a church today. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Look at this. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? My, oh my, how many of us work on that one. Being foolish Galatians. That's what this book of Galatians, by the way, is all about. So are you a foolish Galatian? Do you think, for example, that after God, now listen, after God truly, genuinely saved you because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, do you think that you can now somehow lose your salvation? That's preached in a lot of churches. Possibility for losing your salvation. If so, you must think you did something to help God save you, and you must do something to keep yourself saved. Stick with me. Stay in this book of Galatians, because that's what Paul deals with all through it. Did you come to your sentence and return to your father and request of him to make you a slave? Even though with great joy he received you as a son, as a daughter. As Paul states it, you begun by the Spirit. Are you now trying to be perfected by living this life in the flesh? God asks us to give, I think, some careful soul-searching thought to this question. Are you mixing law and grace in the living of your Christian life? And how you got saved and how you're keeping yourself saved. If you are, you fit into that category of being a foolish Galatian. And that brings us to my second question. In your outline. Do you understand and accept God's gospel of salvation? By the way, there's a whole lot of people that attend church that don't understand or accept it. So I ask that question again to you, as we're in this book of Galatians. Do you understand and accept God's gospel of salvation? Now we're going to go quickly through a number of verses that you've already been taken through, but you're going to be amazed about this. Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16. You write them down by underneath that main point there, point number two. Galatians 2.16. Paul writes, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith 
in Christ Jesus, so that we may so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law of the flesh, I'm sorry, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times Paul states a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not in any way by that law. Three times he emphasizes that. Write down chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Even so Abraham worked and worked and worked. Right? No. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Write down chapter 3, verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Those who are of faith. Write down chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall what? Live by faith. What does it mean, by the way, to live by faith? It means you are completely trusting Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross by taking your place and paying your penalty in full to save you and keep you saved. That's what it means. Drop down to verse 22 of chapter 3. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be earned, worked for, given, given to those who, what? Believe. Verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be, what? Justified by faith. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God. How'd that come about? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen. Nine times in those scriptures God has said to you and me, we are justified, we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ completely apart from the law of Moses or any works on our part or any effort such as join a particular religion or church or undergoing some sacraments or being baptized or praying to Mary, if you please, to get you saved. How many times does God have to say something before we'll get it through our thick skull? You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I mean, nine times in that brief period span of time, there are verses there. By the way, you're visiting with us, and I don't know everybody's heart. Do you truly want to get saved this morning? Does God have to say it the tenth time? What did he tell you? Be like that prodigal son saying, I'm sick and tired of drinking at the broken cistern of the world and being down there with the pigs and being lost and, and empty and, and searching. I'm ready to come home to the Father who wants to throw His arms around me and He wants to bring out the, the, clo- the, 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 uh, the robe and put the ring on your finger. And He says, you're now my son. You're not a slave. You're my son. And how did it happen? By simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how everyone in this room that's saved got saved. Not by their baptism, not by sacraments, not by Mary, not by some effort. They got saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And that was what was troubling Paul because these people were told something else. It had to be that plus. No, it's Christ and Christ alone. 
So that brings us to number three. Just by help here. Do you grasp the purpose of the law? Now, Pastor Hans has taken you through this, so if you've been here, you've got a pretty good idea of that. But do you grasp the purpose of the law? And we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 24. Paul writes in verse 19, Why the law then? I mean, if I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ, why did he give the law? He says it was added because of transgressions having been ordained by angels, by the agency of a mediator, until the seed, and that's Jesus Christ, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. He said he blessed the whole earth through Abraham's seed. In verse 21, Paul tells us, no law could be given to us that could impart life to us. Did you get that? No law can be given to you that would impart life to us to you. He says, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. And now verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Let me give you five reasons that God gave the law, and I know that Hans has covered some of this, so some will be reviewed. And this is very quickly, we could spend a lot of time on that, but we're just going to go briefly. Five reasons God gave the Mosaic Law. Number one, it reveals to us the holy nature or character of God. It tells you about God being absolutely holy and separated from sin. Secondly, it defines sin in its broadest level, meaning that everybody has a conscience and a sense of right or wrong because God's law is written in their hearts. But the Mosaic Law defines sin in its broadest possible way or level. Thirdly, the Mosaic Law shows sin is more than a defect in man. It's a rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Four. The Mosaic Law makes clear that all violators are under the penalty of death. The Old Testament, God declares there, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. In the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. You knew that verse. And number five, as Paul states it here in Galatians 3.21, God gave the Mosaic Law to demonstrate it could not save anybody. Certainly the nation of Israel being under the Mosaic Law for 1,500 years should have demonstrated that statement. I mean, the nation went further and further away from God, even though they're under the law of Moses, and their acts of rebellion resulted in God bringing the Assyrians and the Babylonians to destroy them and their nation and their temple. And then in 70 AD, again, it happened all over with the Romans. So it showed, it showed that God gave the Mosaic Law to demonstrate it could not save Anybody. So the law had a purpose to reveal the holy character of God, to define sin, declare it as rebellion, pronounce the death sentence upon its violators, and prove historically by the illustration of Israel that the law doesn't and cannot save anybody. And that brings us to our next major movement here in our outline Paul's illustration of the infant heir. The other needed to be introduced to you so you'd be ready for this part. Paul's illustration of the infant heir, H-E-I-R. It's on the, okay, right behind me. Let me read verses 1 and 2 for you. Paul writes, Now I say, 
As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now Paul presents three main thoughts or points in his illustration in these two verses. The first one is this, the child heir is treated like or similar to a slave. I mean, he owns everything. But he's still, he's a child, he's treated like a slave. You remember my opening illustration of the prodigal son. He came to his senses and returned home to his father with the intention of requesting that his father show him mercy and let him return as a hired servant, if you please, a slave. This is Paul's concern here about these Galatian Christians that he's had led to saving faith. They clearly did not understand their standing before their Heavenly Father who had saved them. And so they are trying to please their Heavenly Father because of these Judaizers by mixing law and grace. Thanks to these so-called Christian Judaizers. He is now going to use a well-known illustration out of their everyday life to show them why they cannot do that. So he begins here in these two verses by explaining to them that a child heir is treated like a slave. In the first century, a father could have a son who was an infant child. And his infant son was heir to all the wealth and the whole estate that belonged to the father. The word Paul chose for child here used in this verse, but also translated children in verse 3, that Greek word describes an infant An infant, referring to one who does not speak, and so a very immature child. Keep that in mind. You got a little child here. Paul goes on to state that this infant child really is no different than a slave, although he actually owns everything. By the way, a two-year-old is usually happier with a silver quarter than a million dollars. I've never offered my kids a million dollars, so there you go. But, but uh, you know, they're 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 happy about that. Why? Because they know no difference. They just see a shiny thing to want to play with. And that's Paul's point here. They don't understand the value. And that brings us to Paul's second main point in this uh, illustration here. And that is the child heir is under guardians and managers. This infant child is under guardians and managers. Verse 2 says that. And if you, I'm sorry, uh, verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers. So the child's guardian was usually a slave who was responsible for looking after the child as well as teaching him. The manager would be like a steward, would also be a slave usually, who oversaw the infant child's estate. In other words, the child had no say in his estate, oblivious because of his immaturity. And evidently here in Paul's illustration, the father is dead and that's why a designated slave manages this infant's, infant child's estate. And now Paul's third main point in his illustration. The father sets the child heir's maturity date. The father set it when this child's going to become mature and have access to his whole estate. So the father sets the child's heir's maturity date. Now, even today, every Jewish boy is viewed as becoming a man at age 12. I never viewed either any of the, my three kids as becoming a man at age 12. <laughs> but 
in their culture there. On the 12th birthday, they would celebrate what was called Bar Mitzvah, and they would become men of the Torah or of the law. I find it interesting, though, that when Jesus was 12, he and his parents went up with a caravan of probably relatives up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you might recall that story because when they left after the Passover, they got a day or so ahead and they were, where's Jesus? We've lost Jesus, not baby Jesus. This was Jesus, a 12-year-old. And so they made their way all the way back to Jerusalem and found him in the temple. And what did he say to them? Why, how do you respond? Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's house? Interesting parallel, I think, there. So Paul is now going to explain this illustration and apply it to these Gentile Christians and to you and me as well. Third main point, Paul's application from infancy to sonship. From infancy to sonship. Let me read all verses 3 through 7. So also we. Here comes the application. While we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father, Daddy. Therefore, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's application from infancy to sonship, we begin with our condition as children. That's where we start. Our condition as children. He writes in verse 3, So also we, while children, that's that word infant, that immature little child, were held, held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now remember, Paul is describing that time when we were infants being extremely immature. But what specifically is the infancy time period that Paul is describing here? Listen now, for the Jew, it was that period of time God placed Israel under the law of Moses. In Galatians 3, 23-25, I'll not read it, Paul describes the law as being Israel's guardian or tutor. For 15 centuries, Israel had been in kindergarten and grade school learning her spiritual ABCs, her one, two, threes, if you please. So that she would be ready when Christ would come. She would then get the full revelation since Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He encompasses God's full revelation to man. And the law of Moses was not God's final revelation. It was but a preparation for that final revelation in Christ. Paul says they were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. His meaning behind that, those words, elemental things means the ABCs. 
the grade school, the kindergarten, the one, two, threes, and so forth. This preschool, this kindergarten training is what he's talking about. Paul further described these ABCs down in verses 9 and 10. Look down there where he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the ABCs, the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and we'll get into that a little bit, maybe Lord willing, next week. But listen, also, the unsaved Gentiles were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Those elemental things include their religions, their philosophies, and whatever else Satan could use to keep them in bondage. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul describes these elemental things as speculations and every lofty thing exalted against the knowledge of God. And remember, Paul tells us the Gentiles show the works of the law written in their hearts. So they're back under that elementary ABCs as well like Israel. And their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. That's Romans 2.15. So in that sense they also were under God's law. So this describes Israel under the law of Moses as well as the Gentiles in their unsaved condition. And notice that during that period of time Paul says, We, while children... We, while infants, were held in bondage under these elemental things. For you and me today, as well as every other unsaved person who is yet to come to saving faith, this described that whole period of time when we were unsaved, being held in bondage under the elemental things. In our unsaved condition, we had our view of God, did we not? We may say, well, he doesn't exist. Don't believe in God. We had our view of how the world came into existence. Evolution or whatever. Our personal standard of right and wrong. Our religious and philosophical views. These are what Paul described as the elemental things that we as infant children were held in bondage under. By the way, he's talking to those who will get saved. We'll leave out those who never get saved. That brings us to our second point here in Paul's application, moving from infancy to sonship, and that's our Father's set time for our maturity. Our Father's set time for our maturity. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. In Paul's earlier illustration, the date set by the infant child's father may have been 12 years of age. It may have been 15 years. It may have been 20. He doesn't say. He just uses an illustration. The point here is whatever that date was, notice this, it was set by the father. That's the point. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Isn't that something? And he said, you know, Bill Walker... I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact date. I don't have to worry about it. I'm forgetting a lot of things these days. But God never forgets. He knew the exact date, the very time, everything. He set the date I was going to come to saving faith. Instead of being an infant, I was going to be a mature son and an heir. Isn't that something? This is staggering stuff, folks. This is amazing. The greatness of our salvation. So the point is that the Father sets that date. Now in verse 4, that time had arrived. 
And Paul describes it as the fullness of the time when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That clearly marks, obviously, the time when the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time. We can look back to when God sent his son and discern some of the markers, not all of them, but some of the markers that support why the fullness of the time had come. But only God, only God can fully know why he sent his son exactly when he did. But there are some things we see. We know that the nation of Israel had miserably, miserably failed under the law. So much so that, listen, they couldn't even recognize a Messiah when he was in their midst living a perfectly sinless life, speaking the wisdom of God and working miracle after miracle, and they couldn't even recognize him. You talk about the ABCs not being able to do their work. Goodness. We also know that the nations had become totally bankrupt, worshipping their fickle Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, and you probably have read about them in grade school. My, Alexander the Great had made Greek the common language so that the masses could readily hear as well as read the gospel the Lord's disciples would later proclaim. And Rome had brought peace, kind of solidifying its empire with its uh, armies. And uh, then Rome also developed those incredible roads, uh, that system throughout the empire, that its armies and the Lord's disciples would use those roads for their intended purposes. But God in eternity past had set the time and orchestrated all the providential events to bring that date about exactly when it took place. By the way, he's also set the time exactly when his Lord's going to return. No, that's not strong enough, folks. I'll say it again. He has set the time exactly when his Lord, the Lord is going, your Lord and Savior is going to return. That's right. Boy, everywhere I read repeatedly, and I, I like that one verse that says, when you see, begin to see these signs take place, lift up your head because your redemption draws nigh. You need to be closer to the Lord than ever before. Get out of infancy and become the son that he you are, or daughter that you are, if you please. So that statement, God sent forth his son, is a declaration of Jesus' eternality, As the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That statement is followed by that one born of a woman that declares the Son of God's humanity. It speaks of his virgin birth, his being conceived by God the Holy Spirit with Mary being his mother. He could not be conceived by Joseph or any other man, otherwise he would be born with a sin nature. He had to be both God and sinless man to save us, God to give his sacrifice infinite value and satisfy God's offended holiness, and sinless man to bear our sins and punishment in his own body on the cross. Much more can be said about that, but we're going to move on. Next, Paul writes, the Son of God, Jesus, was born under the law. R.C.H. Lenski states, He who was greater than all law, placed himself under law, and he came to be under law once for all to end this dominion of law. End of quote. The law being the infant child heir's tutor. That's what he said. The law being the infant child's tutor would now come to an end since Jesus Christ came into this 
planted. The infant child heirs moment of maturity set by the Father had come. When Jesus, the Son of God, was born under the law, he had the responsibility to obey that law, and like no man, he obeyed it perfectly, showing to everyone he was absolutely sinless. Therefore, he was the perfect sacrifice and substitute for sinful man. No wonder nine times Paul says that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So his perfect sacrifice brought the law of Moses, the infant child's tutor or guardian, to an end. Now let me illustrate that using, if you please, Jesus' eleven disciples. So you'll see how they were in the ABCs even when Jesus was here teaching them. We're going to exclude Judas because he was unsaved. He's a betrayer. But even while these 11 were following Jesus and being discipled by him for those three and a half years, they were still under their tutor, the law, as Jesus placed himself under the law, having to adhere to all its demands. They were still in kindergarten learning their spiritual ABCs. How do you know that? For example, they had absolutely no clue or understanding of Jesus' real mission. Would you agree with that? They had no clue. (laughs) Even though repeatedly he tried to teach that to them. They had no clue. To them, when Passover came, you had to offer a lamb to God, and they did that. That's how their sins were covered before God. To them, Israel's Messiah was going to come and he was going to somehow overthrow Rome and restore the non-existent nation of Israel back to its days of glory and bring in the kingdom of God. And they wanted to be, of course, great in that kingdom. You know, who's going to be greatest and all that? But they knew nothing of Jesus' real mission or of the real meaning of their Old Testament prophets who predicted Messiah's suffering and death and the Gentiles' reception into that kingdom. I mean, that's what you call being under the ABCs. That's what you call being an infant child, though you're heirs to everything. My. Why did they not know it? Those great truths never entered the mind. Why? They were still infant children under the guardian or tutor of the law. Even when Jesus was crucified, listen, and hanging out there on the cross, and later three days in that tomb, his disciples found themselves still infants. Under the tutor, the law. They were at a total loss of what was taking place. But what happened? What happened when the Lord Jesus was raised up from the dead, ascended back up into heaven, and the Holy Spirit was given, as he says there in in Galatians chapter? What happened then? The time set by the Father had come. No more tutor or guardian or managers. No longer were they under the law. A superbly great transition had taken place. You're no slave. You're God's son. Amen. This, these folk went to sleep over here. And that brings me to point number three in our outline. Our adoption as God's sons. Verses 5 through 7. Our adoption as God's sons. But when the fullness of time came, time set by the Father, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption as sons, or of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Notice those words, that He might redeem those who are under the law. Paul has already emphasized that both Jew and Gentile were under the law. That's our tutor, if you please. He explains that in, de- that in detail, by the way, in Romans chapter 1 through 3. We are all guilty and condemned by the law of God that we in no way could perfectly keep. And that law has been our guardian. It's been our tutor, used by God in our unsaved infant childhood, so to speak. Why? To lead us to Christ and bring us to saving faith. That's right. But how does the Son of God, who was sent from the Father, was born of a woman, born under the law, redeem us? That Greek word redeem is made from two words. It means to buy. And the other word's marketplace. Rome had, I think, millions of slaves. Somebody says up towards the six million. And you'd go down to the marketplace, and there you'd buy yourself a slave. So buy out of the marketplace. The answer to our question is found back in 3.13, chapter 3, verse 13. Look there, would you? Hans has taken you through this portion. Because we saw there, he came that he might redeem those who were under the law. Verse 13 tells how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having, with the old rugged cross, having become a curse for us, For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Listen to those great words in the declaration God speaks to your heart, written here in Romans 8, 1 through 4, that explains that. He became your my curse. No wonder it says salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. He became, he took your curse. Now listen to Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore there is now... What? No condemnation. None whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law, for the law of the spirit of life, different law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You're no longer under your guardian, your old manager, your tutor, the law. For what the law could not do, what could it not do? It couldn't give you life. It, uh, what else? It couldn't forgive you. It couldn't keep you out of hell. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. He set the date, didn't He? God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What do you mean? It means you need a righteousness. And what did He do? When you came, when that prodigal came home to the Father, what did He do? He threw the robe on Him. And God throws the robe of His Son's righteousness on those who come to Him to be saved by faith in His Son alone. Who do not walk according to the flesh. Here we are. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But that's the problem with the Galatian Christians. Trying to live the Christian life in their own strength and power. 
The very moment the father's set time came for your childhood infancy to end, listen there, your maturity began. That's what this scripture's talking about. I want to say it again. The very moment the father's set time came for your childhood infancy to end, your maturity began. Even if you're six years of age and got saved, or 60 For Jesus' disciples, it instantly began the moment the Holy Spirit arrived and entered them, permanently indwelling them. And instantly they were no longer under an old guardian, the manager, tutor, the law of Moses. And instantly they became sons of God, born into his family. And instantly they became adopted into God's family and entered into the benefits of their being heirs, even joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And overnight, if you please, they began to clearly understand the Scriptures. No longer were they dealing with the spiritual ABCs. They beheld the wonders and the riches of God's written word and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, and the full revelation of God opened those scriptures and revealed more scripture to them, which they wrote down for you and me today by the Holy Spirit who now indwells dwelt them and indwells us. But I must go back to how this relates to you. First, remember the Apostle Paul's great concern and troubled heart. He was concerned. That's why this book's in your Bible. These new Gentile Christians were being strongly influenced to mix law and grace to their salvation instead of completely trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save them and would keep them saved. Many a Christian is still bound up doing this as well. They run to God as a miserable lost sinner pleading for him to save them, but not recognizing how greatly the Father loves them and that he declares them to be his precious son, his precious daughter, not a slave who he has adopted as well and made his heir to all that he has. They seek to live their lives as one of his slaves, continuing to be bound by the law, if you please. They don't comprehend what their Heavenly Father declares to be true of them in these verses, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Let me clarify something about your being born into God's family and now his stating that you receive the adoption as son. You say, well, wait a minute, if I'm born, how could I be adopted? These are just two different spectrums that God uses to give you the beauty and the glory of your salvation. Uh, he does the same thing, by the way, with the church. He calls you a church. But then he also calls the church the body of Christ, calls you a flock, a vineyard, a kingdom, a family. So when God says a person places his faith completely in his son to save them, believing that he bore their sins and deserved punishment for them when he went to the cross, God declares that that person is born again, right? You're born again. You're born into God's family. That person receives the indwelling Holy Spirit. By the way, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're not born again. It's that simple. You're just religious. You might be good, but you're not born again if you don't have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you. Permanently dwelling in you, as he says. Because he places you in Christ, and he also places Christ in you. Peter states they become partakers of the very nature of God. 1 Peter 1.4. Yeah, 2 Peter 1.4. But God also declares that as the father of every redeemed person... He has fixed the time when as one of his infant child heirs, a reference to your my unsaved days there now, okay, got that? We will enter into our adoption. Boy, I got adopted at six years of age or seven. I don't know which it was. 
When I got saved, when I got born again. That adoption, speaking of our legal standing, where we will enter into the wealth of our position as a son of my dad, daughter of God. This is amazing stuff, folks. And our adoption also takes place the moment we get saved. Listen to how God describes this to you and me in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Here it goes. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Say it. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. As said, He places you under your tutor when you're unsaved. But those He's going to save, He set the time, the date, when they were going to be saved and be adopted. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Paul describes something of what our adoption means to us now that we have become sons of God. Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. Let me read that for you. You can follow with what's on the wall behind me. He describes something of what our adoption means to us now that we become sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of slavery leading again to fear again once you meet. In other words, you're not under the law anymore. You're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. The guardian, the tutor, and so forth. It's forever gone. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. In Galatians, it's the Holy Spirit crying out. Now you're crying out, Daddy! That's Aramaic, Abba. Father, that's the Greek. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, born ones, not infants. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and though we enjoy so much of our inheritance right now, we are told far more beyond our wildest comprehension yet awaits us. Look down at verse 23 of Romans 8. You don't need to switch to it. It's back here on the wall. Here at this church, we have the handwriting on the wall, okay? (laughs) And not only this, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is the redemption of our body? And that doesn't even touch on it. No wonder Pastor John Hill says, just let me go home. I'm 82, riddled with cancer. Just let me go home. Because he's adopted. He is wealthy. He's an heir with God and with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me add one more rich thought God gives you to you and me from the Apostle Peter about being born again and being adopted so as to receive our inheritance from God, our Heavenly Father. That's in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Such rich, rich passages here. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
He set the date, didn't he? And you got to say, by the way, maybe he set the date for somebody in this room to get saved today. Saved to a living, born again to a living hope. Living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain, here we go, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready, ready to be revealed in the last time. How are we protected by the power of God? Paul tells you there in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, by the indwelling Holy Spirit. By the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, no longer infants under the law, but mature sons who are even now enjoying part of your riches in Christ Jesus, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Notice Paul includes himself there in that verse with the Galatian Christians and you and me. Crying, Abba, Father. Much more can be said about that. Maybe next week I will. And now Paul drives home his point. Don't miss it. Now he drives home his point. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice how Paul deliberately makes it personal. Before it was the plural sons, now it's personal. He doesn't write, you are no longer slaves but, a, but sons, but rather you are no longer slaves but a son. As that prodigal, you came to your senses and got up from your fallen sinful condition and returned to your father. And your father was waiting for you with open arms, wasn't he? By the way, that's a great parable because I don't care what sin you've fallen into, how much you're down there with the pigs and your garments are filthy and and you feel like you're unworthy and God could never save you. Listen, your father is waiting for you to come home. And if in eternity past, he has chosen you to be one of his sons, you know what? You're going to come home. You're going to come home and in your heart you're going to say, you know, I don't deserve this. And you're right, you don't, none of us did. Make me one of your slaves and that never happens. That never happens. He's waiting for you with open arms and a heart filled overflowing toward you. He did not even let those words get out of this son's mouth. Make me one of your hired servants or slaves. He says, he immediately reclaims you as his precious son, clothes you with his son's righteousness, Places upon your finger the ring symbolizing you are an heir. And he demands that the celebration begins. And by the way, the angels in heaven shout with joy when a sinner comes back home. Let me make some personal applications and we'll be done this morning. All right, afternoon. Consider for a moment the consequences of what happens when you place yourself back under the law and try living your Christian life in your flesh. And we all do that. It's an everyday battle. Anytime that I'm trying to live my Christian life in my flesh, I'm right back under the law. My tutor. 
once again becoming a slave or an infant, not accepting our new position as a mature son, as such, enjoying the wonderful benefits of being God's heir. And that's what the rest of Galatians deals with. First, as a father's son, you have the same nature as your heavenly father. By the way, if you're not saved, you have the nature of the devil, don't you? You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said in John 8. As a father's son, you have the same nature as your heavenly father. The slave does not. Paul writes, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Then he writes, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What a staggering thought, that every one of us who are saved partakes right now of the divine nature. Well, you have God the Holy Spirit living in you, no wonder. But secondly, as the Father's Son, He is your Father. That's why you cry out, Abba, Father. But your father is a slave's master. Quite a difference, isn't it? He's not my master, he's my heavenly father. Yes, he's my God, my creator, but he's my heavenly father. Thirdly, as a father's son, you obey him out of love because he's changed your heart. The slave obeys him out of fear. Isn't that true? You desire to obey him. Oh, I know imperfectly, but you do out of love. But the slave obeys God, or you say the father, out of fear. Fourthly, as a father's son, you are exceedingly rich. The slave is poor. Let me share three verses with that. Second Corinthians 8 9. You can write that down if you want. 2 Corinthians 8 9. As a father's son, you are exceedingly rich, but the slave is poor. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity around here. We're talking about the true riches that come from God. And by the way, all the people that have the, of the world that have all this incredible wealth and power, when they die, they take none of it with them. In fact, where the head is not very exciting at all. But you and I, we head into incredible riches. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 and 23 through 23. I don't know if you've really thought about these verses. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. Paul says to the Corinthian believers and to you and me, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter. Oh, look at this. Or the world? Hey, you can have this messed up sinful world controlled by Satan. I'm going to get it when God recreates it. And it's going to be incredible. The world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And add to that what we already noted earlier in Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? And you haven't even begun right, to touch on what it means to be an heir who's going to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the eternal age of ages. Wow. Number five, 
Not that they're in your notes, but as the Father's Son, you have a future. Remember, a living hope, born again to a living hope. As a Father's Son, you have a future. The slave does not. You're no slave. You're God's Son. If you're truly saved, I want you men and you boys... If you're truly saved, now don't do it yet. I want you to say, I am no slave. I am God's son. If you are a lady or young lady and you're saved, I want you to say, I am no slave. I am God's daughter. You ready for this? Together. You know what you're going to do? You know how to do this now? Don't, don't flunk this. You're going to say, I am no slave. I'm God's son or daughter. Okay, together? Together. I am no slave. I am God's son. Once again. I am no slave. I am God's son. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a song now that speaks of that. You know it so well. So we're going to have the pianist come at this time. And you're going to join me in this incredible song. I'll pray while she's coming, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an amazing passage of Scripture by Paul. He goes on to say, don't walk in the flesh, walk by the Spirit. And you know the battle we have there, Lord. We seem to go right back as foolish Galatians trying to work out our salvation on our own, trying to live the victorious life in the flesh. Pride gets in there, and we just fail miserably. May those words ring in our heart and mind. I am no slave. I am God's son. I don't need to rush to the Father and say, make me a slave. No, you put your robe of righteousness on me. You took off the ring and you put it on my finger. You put sandals on my feet. You killed the fatted calf. And you said, we're going to celebrate. Bill has come home. But Father, I don't know everybody who's here. I don't know who thinks they're saved and they're not saved. I don't know who's trusting a religion or a church to save them. I don't know who says, well, I don't really believe that God is real. I believe it all came about by evolution and we just die and that's it. I don't know, but you do. And I've tried to be faithful to communicate the scriptures, the God-breathed written word of God in this passage, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Am I to see, therefore, you're no longer a slave. You are a son of God and an heir of God. I pray that you would bring any person who is not that, who, whether they know it or not, is still a slave, still drinking at the broken cistern of the world's water, muddy, putrid, and needs to come home and drink of the water of life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that. And Father, I don't need them to come forward. All they need to do is look at that passage and say, you're saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, justified by faith in Christ alone. I'm going to trust Him to save me. I'm going to trust Him that He died on that cross, bore all my sins, bore all my deserved punishment. And when you raised Him from the dead, you declared to me, I'm completely satisfied. The payment has been made in full. Now stop being a slave. Come home to my arms and be my son. Be my heir. And Lord, as we sing this song, 
may that speak to our heart as well. Thank you for Charles Wesley who wrote it. In your name, amen.